Welcome to the Eye on the Cure podcast, the podcast about winning the fight against retinal disease from the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Welcome, everyone, to the Eye on the Cure podcast. I'm your host, Ben Shaberman, with the Foundation Fighting Blindness. Glad you could join us for this episode. And my guest for this episode is Dr. David Birch from the Retina Foundation of the Southwest in Dallas. And in case you weren't familiar with David, he has been a key figure and thought leader in the inherited retinal disease research field for more than four decades. And I'm guessing that he has been an investigator on more IRD clinical trials than just about any other clinician or scientist in this space. And David has also been an active member of the Foundation's Scientific Advisory Board for several decades, and he's provided important insights into the state of IRD research and where the best opportunities have been for developing treatments and cures. So David, it's a real pleasure and privilege to have you on Eye on the Cure. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ben. It's a real pleasure to be here. Look forward to this. Me too. I'm looking forward as well. But before we get started in our conversation, I wanted people to get a little more background on you. You have a Bachelor of Arts from the University of California, Riverside, a PhD from the University of California, Santa Barbara, a strong California connection there, (laughs) fellowships from University of Florida Medical School and Mass Ioneer. David has been an author on more than 350 peer-reviewed publications. You've been at the foundation, the Retina Foundation, for more than 40 years. And your titles, if I have this correct, are Director of the Rose Silverthorne Laboratory for Retinal Degenerations and Scientific Director, again, at the Retina Foundation. So, David, my first question is, you obviously went into inherited retinal disease research early on in your career, really right out of college. What inspired you to get into the inherited retinal disease space? So I was a basic scientist for my PhD. I got my degree with Dr. Jerry Jacobs in Santa Barbara, and it was all monkey experiments, you know, non-human primates. We were doing a lot of recording from the visual system, trying to understand how color vision works. And then my actual degree was based on kind of a split off from that, looking at at how light damage occurred in different animal species. And in doing my my studies and and the research I did on on light damage, it sort of occurred to me that what I'm doing here, this is a model for a human disease. And, you know, it can be, you can learn all you want about how light affects the photoreceptors and stuff and damages them. But unless you relate it to something human, it it really doesn't have that much importance. So it kind of early on got me thinking about the application of basic research to human conditions, clinical conditions. And at about the time I was finishing my PhD, I was kind of looking for postdoctoral opportunities. The National Eye Institute had a sort of a unique program at the time where it took basic scientists, 
PhDs and put them into clinical programs. And the idea was to sort of aid, there was kind of this big gap between science and, and practice and, and application. And the idea was to put the basic scientists into the clinical environment to see what would happen. And so I uh, began with Jay Enoch, and then I spent three years, really formative years, with Elliot Burson at Mass Ioneer. And as your listeners will probably realize, Elliot's sort of the, the grandfather of, of retinal degeneration. He had the, the initial lab devoted to the study of, of retinitis pigmentosa and allied conditions at Berman Gund in, in Boston. He was right there at the beginning of the foundation finding blindness, you know, the uh, one of the initial organizers and, and with Ben Berman and then Gordon Gunn. And so I was sort of there at that time, a little bit afterwards, but, you know, at the time, Elliot Burson was doing most of the work in, in retinitis pigmentosa, and he was a very strong person and influenced me heavily on the importance of electroretinograms and vitamin A and a variety of other topics. But that sort of um, all led to a sort of a, a a clinical interest, but I've always sort of tried to approach it with basic science and in, in doing basic science experiments. That's great. Yeah. Elliot, Elliot was the man back in the early seventies and definitely vitamin A and ERGs were his, his wheelhouse. Right. And what's interesting for me is that when I started with the foundation almost 20 years ago now, I mean, I got to know you early on because you were at that point really embedded in our work. And over the years, I've watched you be involved with so many different clinical trials. I remember the Neurotech device. Um, you did a trial for DHA for people with X-linked RP. There was the valproic acid for RP trial. I remember doing an article on the Stem Cell Inc., AMD trial for RPE, you've been involved in X-linked RP gene therapy, and the list goes on. We, we've, I think, made it abundantly clear you've done an incredible amount of clinical research. What do you think your core strengths are when it comes to research and being involved in these clinical trials? Right now, I'd have to say I'm not going to stop until until we get some really positive results. I mean, one of the frustrations, obviously, over the years has been that we haven't found anything that's been really impactful. I mean, there have been, you know, sort of hints at efficacy with DHA and a couple of other things, but but nothing really dramatic to change the progression of the disease. And so, you know, my goal is to stay with this, if I can, until we really have some positive outcomes. And if I'm involved in it, then people are going to believe it because I've never made up anything in the past. I've got a great history of uh, clinical trials that did not reach their endpoints. But I think one of the things I like to think about myself is that I'm collaborative. And I think one of the things I realized coming out of Birmingham and, and the environment at the time, there were maybe after in the 80s, and 90s, there were sort of individual labs pursuing their thing. You know, they they were they were they were all sort of isolated kingdoms, and um, there wasn't a lot of collaboration. In fact, you get to Arvo meetings and meetings of, of scientists or clinicians, and they would always be attacking each other. There'd be big attacks on Elliot for the vitamin A, and there'd be big attacks on Fishman for something, you know, CME or whatever. And it just wasn't very collaborative. And I, I was really 
determined to get get away from that. So I really made a lot of connections in the early days with people at Hopkins and people at San Francisco and Oregon. You know, I like to think that I'm part of the generation that developed the collaborations that we have now within the Foundation of Fighting Blindness and within the IRD community, where we can all work together and do these multi-center clinical trials, because I think that's the real strength. You know, if you can get different groups together and work on the same thing and develop a trial and get the same kind of result at every center, then that's much more convincing than a single investigator type trial. Right. I would so agree. I've I've watched you in these collaborative projects and moments for so many years. So I, I would definitely agree with that. One other thing that I think is really important, a, a skill set that you bring to these research efforts, and it's becoming even more and more important, is your expertise with outcome measures and endpoints. Because as of late, while we have had some misses in the clinic, in clinical trials, we have seen signs of efficacy. We have seen some vision improvement. It's coming up with the right endpoints so that we can get FDA approval that is perhaps the biggest hurdle that we have at this moment. Would you agree that your knowledge of, you know, whether it's microperimetry or ERGs, OCT, whatever, all those different ways of measuring retinal structure and function, would you agree that that's kind of your wheelhouse? Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's evolved over the years. I mean, it was primarily electroretinograms, and that's fine for sort of early disease, you know, for, for younger patients. Unfortunately, the electroretinogram is really sensitive, but it's also very susceptible to the degeneration. So once a person reaches sort of an intermediate stage of RP, the ERG is almost non-detectable. So as an outcome measure in the, in the trials that we're doing now, where it tends to be later stage disease, the ERG has not been particularly helpful. So we've moved to other things. And one of the uh, outcome measures that I'm sort of particularly involved in is, is with optical imaging and the OCT. And uh, I have my colleague, Donald Hood, to, to thank for a lot of the work we did together. I remember distinctly, you know, looking at OCTs over several years in a few patients and just realizing, well, you can see this change, this, this line of photoreceptors that you see in the OCT. It's shrinking and it's visibly shrinking over a couple of years. And that to me, and the fact that you could measure that very precisely, gave me the idea that that could be a really good outcome measure for clinical trials. And at the time, you know, the FDA was not particularly interested in structural outcomes. They were much more focused on uh, how the patient uh, felt and whether the patient's performance and behavior was affected by the disease, the, the progression. So it took some time to sort of convince the FDA that uh, this was was really a, a surrogate or a measurement of, of that would be effective, would be influential in, in the patient's future. So it's evolved, you know, as we as we moved into gene therapy, we had very different types of outcome measures that we had to consider. We're now treating just a small portion of the retina. So a an ERG that measures the whole retina is not really going to respond much to a small change in a local region. So we had to go to local measures and things like microperimetry, like you mentioned, turned out to be really sensitive to, to these changes. And, you know, I think it was naive to think, you know, that 
we were going to put a gene in and suddenly get normal vision. It's going to take stages. It's going to be a graded kind of improvement as we get better at this. But I think we are, like you said, seeing some evidence of, of success. And as we build on that, you know, I think we'll get increases in these outcome measures, increases in vision that will reach the FDA standard. And understandably, the FDA doesn't want just a very tiny change. You know, if you're going to do this, this radical intervention in, in the human eye, it has to make a big difference. And, you know, we are still not seeing those big differences in, in most of these trials, although, you know, Luxterna was the big exception. Right, right. And just so our listeners know, we've been talking about OCT quite a bit, optical coherence tomography. Just about anybody who goes to a retinal specialist gets an OCT scan that looks at the different layers of the retina. So you can see how many photoreceptors are left and where there might be some untoward things going on in the retina. And you didn't mention this. I appreciate your humility, but you came up with an endpoint called easy with or the ellipsoid zone, which actually measures ultimately how many photoreceptors or what the population of photoreceptors is left. And that's a valid endpoint, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And has been accepted as, as that. Yeah, it was really a, a small jump, but I'm, we basically went from using the OCT to sort of confirm that the receptors were missing and that it was consistent with RP to actually measuring that and actually having an objective outcome measurement. And that, you know, you take this really complicated optical coherence tomography image, it was kind of maybe my simple mindedness, but just say, let's just measure it. And it, it worked and it's been very successful. And what's cool about that, so our listeners know, is that, if I remember correctly, came out of a trial for valproic acid for retinitis pigmentosa. Unfortunately, the results for that trial weren't very encouraging, but that's where you came up with the easy with endpoint. If a little bit before that, actually. It's a little bit before that with X-linked RP, the DHA. Oh, okay. But the valproic acid trial, that was making the transition from a linear measurement, the width, to the area, oh. which is the whole area. And the first time we used the area was in the valproic acid study. So that was uh, sort of a requirement of the FDA. They they wanted the area to sort of, in the same way they want the visual field, you know, not just a linear extent of, of vision. Got it. So you've, as we've talked about, have been in the field for quite some time, and I'm sure there have been some really important, memorable moments, surprises throughout your career. Are there any that come to mind that you can share with us? I remember distinctly having a conversation with Steve Dager, who was sort of a longtime collaborator. He's another stalwart of the, of the Foundation Fighting Blindness from Houston. And uh, we, we began collaborating very early on. And having sent so many, many samples to him, he started identifying new mutations. And I remember just talking with him and, and hearing him describe four new dominant mutations. You know, we, we had rhodopsin and we had RPE, RDS, you know, the peripheral mutation. And uh, we thought that was going to account for most of the dominant. Turns out there were many, many, many more. And just, just the, the impact that had on, the, on, on our thinking, you know, that we, that we had multiple genes and this was not just one disease. And now we knew why patients didn't all behave the same. And, you know, we began to look at um, differences in the, in the behavior, in the, in the vision of, of patients with different mutations. But going from a 
point where we did trials without even awareness or even knowledge of the mutation because nobody could identify it to trials where they were entirely dependent on the mutation. Now it's it's really a change in in strategy and a change in the way the field has been has been structured. Right. And excitingly yeah. now we can genetically test people. We have a no-cost program that really any doctor in the country can order a genetic test for their IRD patients, but we can get a result in a conclusive result in about 60 to 70% of cases. Yeah. And to the time that you just talked about, we didn't even know, yeah. have a sense of how how vast and diverse the genetic yeah. field would be. Before that program began, we were really dependent on the goodwill of our colleagues. You know, I would send samples to different labs, and um, so they they sort of had to come up with their own funding to to do the analyses. And we were just very fortunate to have a lot of collaborators that helped us with with the mutation testing, but we didn't, we couldn't do everybody. And, you know, it was race selected uh, patients, but the FFB program really changed everything. And we began genotyping every new patient, you know, putting them into my retina tracker, genotyping them. And that has led to these large populations now that several sites have where we can do these studies. We couldn't have done, done any of these gene therapy studies without the, the help of my, my retina tracker. That's such a key point. You have to genetically screen and identify patients if you're going to put them in a gene therapy right. trial. Right. It's right. fundamental, but very important. And it's very hard to ask the patients to pay for it because they we tell them that it'll be for their own good and it's good to know what the mutation is and all that, but do they really want to spend a couple of hundred dollars or whatever? You know, it's, 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 a, it's a tough sell sometimes. I so, totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. So we've alluded to... One success in the field, the identification of all these mutated genes and being able to catalog and capture all the patients that are affected in my retina tracker. What, what do you think some of the other key achievements and successes in the field have been in your career? Certainly, I would say almost perfection of subretinal surgery now. The fact that, that these brave surgeons took on the task of placing these genes under the retina, you know, and creating what's essentially a, a retinal detachment, you know, and there was a lot of resistance, fear about what that would lead to. But, you know, over time, it became clear that the retina is extremely resilient, that if it's only detached for a, an hour or so, it'll recover almost perfectly or perfectly. And it's very diff different from a detachment that you might have from trauma or from a break in the retina. So I think, you know, the, um, the perfection of the delivery tools for getting these genes into the retina has been a huge, huge step. Right. And can you explain exactly what a subretinal injection is? You've mentioned it sort of yeah. by talking about the detachment, but where's the needle actually going that injects the therapy? So it has to go into the retina and it has to go beyond the photoreceptors, but not go through the, the pigment epithelium. So you're actually lifting up the, the retina from the back of the eye and creating a space there to put the, the gene. And, and the needle is actually going through the retina. Yeah. I think that's the part that kind of freaks me. <laughs> so think about it. Right. It's not just underneath the retina. It's kind of through the retina. Right. As you're alluding to, this is a commonplace surgery now. Right. I mean, and now, now we're doing it with OCT, 
again, right. the optical coherence topography. So we actually see the needle advancing in the retina. We can go exactly the depth we need to go without the risk of going too far, which is kind of the worst possible outcome. So, you know, it's really, uh, it's done the visual control. It's much more controlled than it was in the first days. Exactly. So we've talked about some of the successes. What do you think are the big challenges moving forward? We've gotten so many clinical trials off the ground. We've seen some signs of success in some of those trials. What do you think needs to happen if we're going to cross the finish line more? I think there has to be sort of a recalibration of how we do trials in a sense, because, you know, what we're doing now, you know, is we're getting some investment money together, some support for the trial. We're doing the trial and it's either make or break. You know, you either uh, reach your endpoint and get FDA approval or you don't. And if you don't, the whole thing just ends, you know, falls apart. And what we need are follow-ups on these unsuccessful ones. The Night Star trials in cordyremia are a great example where we had lots, you know, a lot of patients who benefited from the treatment, but just not enough. And so the follow-up is to find out which patients benefited, which didn't, you know, what variables are involved in the success. But, you know, it wasn't just something to be abandoned. And fortunately, there are some pioneers who are staying with it and following these patients over a long period of time. And hopefully there'll be some more work in corroderemia with a, sim with a similar or modified approach, you know. But I think that we have to get to the idea that we have to evolve these treatments. They're not just going to happen all or nothing. It's going to be step after step after step. And we have to be willing to, to stay the course. Yeah, I think those are great points. And we have to realize, and you take the Nightstar choroideremia trial as an example, even though it wasn't ultimately, it didn't ultimately lead to a successful FDA approval, there were things that were learned. There were some vision improvements. And to take that information and apply it to the next trial is, is really important. Absolutely. So you do a lot of different things with patients and research, what gives you the most satisfaction on a day-to-day -day basis in your clinic for what you do with patients and, and, and the research? I think explaining the, the research to patients. I, I really enjoy telling patients about what's going on and what's happening. And I try to do it in a, you know, sort of a truthful and, and reasonable way. I don't try to present them with false hope. I just try to make it clear that there's a lot of effort. You know, they're not alone. There's work being done and uh, it's just a question of time. And especially with younger patients, I think that's really an important message for them to have because on the one hand, they just see a, a continual decline, especially if they have family members who've lost their vision. You know, they, they see sort of a, a bleak future. But I think uh, letting them know that there are some, you know, really strong possibilities for intervention in the, in the upcoming years. It's important. And, exactly. I, and I enjoy seeing their attitudes change, you know, and, and, you know, I don't want them to leave with false hope, but I do want them to leave with hope. So. Well, one thing I love to do is to refer patients to because I know they're going to get great care. You're going to conduct all the necessary tests that need to be, that need to be done, but that you're going to spend time with them, help them understand their condition yeah. and the research yeah. that's underway and ultimately communicate hope, which 
is very real at this at this juncture. So we've talked about some of your collaborators over the years, and excitingly, you're going to have a new collaborator very soon. Can you tell us about that new collaborator? Yeah, absolutely. We're delighted. Um, we, you know, it's uh, it's part of a transition process for me. I mean, I'm not going to be able to do what I'm doing forever, but I intend to stick around for a while. But as part of our transitional planning, our transitional process, we began recruiting, trying to recruit somebody to come to the foundation. And we were successful in recruiting Mark Panisi. And as you know, you know, Mark Panisi is one of the leaders of the field. He's head of the genetics program at Oregon Health Science Center. He's an unbelievable guy. And uh, we, we actually worked together. He grew up in Dallas, which I think is part of his appeal, part of the appeal of the foundation. He's, he's a Dallas kid, Texan. And um, I think, you know, the, the growth of the Retina Foundation, the fact that we can become almost an international destination for patients, you know, I think that sort of appealed to him. And I, I expect him to grow the foundation to the next level. You know, I think uh, I'm proud of what I've done, taking it from nothing to where it is now, but he's going to take it and take it another huge leap. So tremendously excited. He'll will overlap for a few years. When he gets sick of me, he can throw me out. Or when I get, when I when I decide to go fishing, I can do that, you know. But uh, there'll be a transitional period. Uh, the patients will be in fantastic hands. We'll we'll collaborate with OHSU too. He's going to go back and forth, and we're going to have some collaborative projects. We already have a new imaging system that we're having somebody at OHSU build for us. So you know, it's a it's an exciting time. That's such a cool partnership that you're going to have. Really a dynamic duo, if you will. We're excited to see Mark going to the Retina Foundation of the Southwest. Or or squabbling siblings, one of the two two models. (laughs) Both you and Mark are very affable, collaborative people. So I'm I'm sure it'll be just fine. The sum of the parts will be greater than the whole. So I hope you stick around for a while to work with him. I think together you're going to do a lot of great things. But speaking of collaborators, I know your wife is at the Retina Foundation. Of the absolutely, South. absolutely. And she's in ophthalmology. Yep. Tell us a little bit about Eileen Birch, Dr. Eileen. So, Birch. yeah, we actually met in graduate school and uh, coordinated our careers throughout our postdocs. We managed to get two postdocs in in the Boston area. She went to MIT, worked with Dick Held, and she's um, an infant development person. She spends all her time with uh, kids that are at risk for amblyopia and other congenital kinds of issues. And so she's been a tremendous help. We've worked together on on some testing of infants at risk for RP and stuff. one of our big collaborations 15, 20 years ago was on infant formula. We worked with a guy at the med school, medical school, UT Southwestern, and looked at the importance of adding DHA, nutritional supplement, to preterm and full-term infant formula. And it's the only clinical trial I've ever been involved in where it was stopped before the end because the, the improvement was so obvious. They no longer allowed us to randomize the kids to standard formula. And so within a couple of years of doing that work, and unfortunately, you know, this was before everybody had patents and commercial interests and stuff. 
So we we did this. We, our our funding all came from National Institute, and Mead Johnson provided the formula to us without any cost. So it was kind of a nice arrangement. But once the study was successful, Mead Johnson added DHA to its formula and upped its price. And, you know, the commercial side of it took over. But it was a great set of studies to be involved in. That, mostly, that, mostly hers. Right, but that's such a great story, and together. You made such a difference. It's kind of ironic that the one collaboration you did from a research standpoint <laughs> with your wife was wild, wildly successful. I know. That's a real I, testament to marriage, right? I should get her involved in more of the DHA trials. I mean, the X-linked RP trials, right? Exactly. I think that's your lesson from <laughs> that collaboration. So just to round things out to help people understand a little more about David Birch. I know we've been talking a lot about research and I presume with your wife, you talk a lot about research when you get home in the evening, but what do you like to do for fun? How do you relax and have a good time? I'm a big reader. I love to read, probably read a book every week or every other week. I'm also still trying to stay active. I play a lot of tennis. It's not the way it was when I was 30 or <laughs> I mean, they talk about Djokovic being ancient at 35 or 36. I mean, you know, I'm ancient, but I'm still able to get a few of those shots back. And I still like to uh, water ski and, you know, do things like that, get out to the lake, do a lot of hiking. So it's kind of a California sort of mentality, a lot of outdoor stuff, you know, the ocean. And, and you know, why am I in Dallas? I mean, it, it's interesting. I probably get to the ocean more than some of my relatives in, in California. You know, it's kind of when when you don't have it, you want it and you go there. So right. we, do, we do a lot of trips. And actually the South, uh, the Gulf Coast is really, really beautiful and fun. Great, great food. So I travel and uh, that's one of the things I do look forward to, you know, is, is more time to travel. And, right. and not having to worry about the talk I'm going to give when I do travel. Right. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. Yes. When, when you have work, when you have a talk, yeah, it, it's work. It it's detracts work. from the day off. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. So are you from Southern California originally? Northern. Northern. Oh. Berkeley. 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 You can imagine Berkeley in the 60s. Oh. <laughs> that's where I'm from. Well, that's a lot, a about lot me, more it? about you, David. It does. It does. Okay. Well, that's, that's right. pretty cool. Are, are you a fan of like Grateful Dead, Jefferson oh, yeah. Airplane? Absolutely. Yeah. David. And we Burke? go out, we That's go out to Golden Gate Field on, on the weekends and the Fillmore. And it was a good time. That's pretty cool. But unlike some of my friends, I got out. <laughs> I knew <laughs> I knew when it was time to <laughs> do something else. Because if you, you know, if you, if I stayed in Santa Barbara or in Berkeley, I, I would have had a totally different life. No question about it. So well. We're glad you moved to Dallas and thank you for just all the great work you've done for research, for patients. And yeah, there've been a lot of challenges in the field, but you, along with many of the people you mentioned, Steve Dager, Elliot Burson, and now Mark Panisi, you've done and are going to continue to do great things to move more treatments across the finish line. So David, I greatly appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to talk with me. And honestly, for all the time that I've been with the foundation, which again is approaching 20 years for myself, it's been an honor and a privilege to know you. And you're always a great resource 
for information <laughs> when I have questions about what's going on with this trial. What do you know about this endpoint? So uh, thank you. Thank for all you. It's, it's always great talking to you. I enjoy, always enjoy it. Same here. It's a pleasure for me. And listeners, as always, thanks for joining. I am The Cure. Glad you could be with us for this episode and stay tuned for the next one. Catch you later. This has been Eye on the Cure. To help us win the fight, please donate at foundationfightingblindness.org.